Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 117. Hey, hey, sorry for breaking in on Samuel there, folks, but we got so wrapped up in just the day-to-day of recording this podcast that we didn't even pay attention to what day this one would be released. Now that we're ready to publish it, we figured we should take a moment and thank you all for listening to the podcast and just to give you, from both of us, a very sincere wish for a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Back to you, Samuel. Last week, we started off our talk seeing Jesus being troubled. He seems to be wrestling with his upcoming fate, this tension between his will and God's will, but he leans into the obedient choice of fulfilling God's purpose for coming and living as a human um, and fulfilling all of Torah, which is unfortunately going to lead to his suffering and death but then god the father uh, in the midst of this speaks out of the heavens after jesus says like god the father like glorify your name and god the father responds and says like i have glorified it and i will glorify (laughs) it again and uh, we have this debate between people some thought that they heard thunder some actually thought it was a voice, but they attributed it to angels. But it's interesting that Jesus says that the purpose of the voice coming down was for the people around him listening to him. It was for their benefit, not for Jesus's, which is interesting. It's like a yet another stamp of approval for the people who were following Jesus to say this person was sent by God uh, and you need to be reminded of that especially here in the last week of his life and then we moved on from there about uh, Jesus was saying that the judgment of the world is coming and that this ruler of the world is about to be casted out and this now and not yet aspect of Jesus's death and resurrection is going to kind of defeat the enemy but not in its fullness yet. Um, it's going right. to be the the final blow, but the enemy's not dead yet, uh, and that's not going to happen until Messiah's second coming as conquering king. Yeah. And then we ended with Jesus talking a lot about he as Messiah going away or being lifted up, and that's hinting at his crucifixion. And the people responded by saying, this doesn't make sense. We've heard that the, that the Messiah, the king that we've been waiting for, is going to remain forever. Right. Uh, why is it that you're saying that he's going to be lifted up or taken away? And Jesus doesn't really respond in the way that you might think. He talks about light. He says, like, this, the light is among you, and it's not going to be with you forever. So, like, lean into the light so that you can be sons of light. And then he basically stops teaching and talking and leaves them. <laughs> yeah. And that yeah. we, we, we kind of said this might have been his final public teaching from this moment on until his death. 
Yeah, yeah, that's going to get slightly complicated, you know, from from the Gospels. But yeah, a lot of people look at that as, look, from John's perspective, John's Gospel, we're going to draw a line here and say, yeah, this is Jesus ending his public ministry. Yeah. This is an amazing section of Scripture, obviously, this entire week and, and the things we're headed for. And John... He's not done. You know how, Samuel, we have, uh, up to this point, we, we had this mention of these Greeks, these Gentiles, and we've tried to kind of keep them in the story, at least as a, as a possibility. Well, what if they are still there? This, maybe this is what this sounds like, or what if, you know, what if they're not, then, you know, just from a Jewish perspective, whatever. Well, I think now, where we're headed, uh, you pretty much got to believe the G, the, those Greeks are completely out of the picture in terms of the text, John's mind is in writing, whatever. You'll see what I mean. Uh, let's go ahead and pick up with John chapter 12. We're going to read verses 37 to 41. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Okay, so, <laughs> again, we're in John, so totally easy to understand, always, right? <laughs> so, uh, now, uh, as I mentioned before, we don't know that we know, but it kind of seems obvious at this point, man, any thought of those Gentiles that, that were introduced to him, whatever, that's just kind of gone now, because he starts with, you know, hey, he's done all of these signs before them, and they still don't believe. Well, we don't have any indication that Jesus did any particular signs or whatever, so they must be talking about the Jewish crowd and things that they've seen across his three years, you know, et cetera, all that kind of stuff. So we're not going to try to continue leaving room for them or seeing where they could fit in. That That's just over. So, But also what's interesting to note here is this is now John speaking John is inserting commentary into his gospel right here. So what he's saying is that Jesus' words at this moment, they're, they're still not enough for the crowds. And even these words taken together with everything that Jesus had done up to this point, the signs, the miracles, whatever, and as you mentioned, even that voice from heaven, and we've seen, like you mentioned again, Samuel, more than once, God has offered some sort of tangible stamp of approval. They still don't believe him or believe in him as Messiah. And John, he sees this unbelief as a fulfillment of Scripture. So first, he cites Isaiah 53.1. Now, this is from some of Isaiah's famous, you know, suffering servant stuff. It speaks very clearly of Messiah's life and death, and we're going to say Jesus's life and death. John was likely citing the first verse, 
well, okay, we think of everything in terms of chapters and verses, whatever. John's likely citing this particular verse so that his reader will recall that entire section of Isaiah. Now, Jesus had not fulfilled all of their expectations, which, you know, again, we've said it many times, normally revolved around the idea of the conquering king, etc., etc. But Jesus had fulfilled, or, you know, obviously John is writing about the past. He is about to fulfill those expectations about the suffering servant. So John's conclusion, writing, looking back at the whole scenario, isn't that they would not believe, but that they could not believe. That scripture had come to pass. And then John adds a bit from Isaiah 6, 10. And it's paraphrased. Uh, In the original, there is, I think, a very ironic tone. Isaiah is supposed to continue to speak even though he knows the people won't hear. They will continue to, you know, in the simple sense, see and hear, but they will not understand or perceive. The more God speaks through someone like Isaiah, the more dull they become. So it's ironic, right? So John takes it up a notch and he states it as if God is literally hardening their hearts, blinding them. And and this is the funny part. John continues the, the irony. How is he doing it? How is he hardening their hearts, blinding them? With revelation. What? How can that be? And, you know, uh, it's like a, a giant bowl of non-intuitive right there, if you want to snack on that for a while. As in Isaiah, God is giving people more revelation than they should need. And in fact, it's now causing the reverse effect, at least in some. It depends on who you're talking to. Some would argue in most. They are becoming hard to the idea of Jesus as Messiah. And so the end result of this is also the same, same as it was back in Isaiah's day, uh, you know, depending on where you're reading in Isaiah, the same result. It's exile. God will, in some cases, stop sharing his plans. But when he does share, he will harden them so that they can't even hear it. This generation had blown their chance And they were going to suffer the consequences of it in real life, in real time. And and following generations are going to be affected by it too. Samuel, just so we can kind of get the image. So so when we see John saying it, I don't know about you, it always feels a little bit mystical and weird to me. But let's, let's go to something a little clearer, I think. Paul writing in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Samuel, read that. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Yeah, that partial hardening on Israel is that they they have in some sense been blinded to the truth. They can't, they wouldn't see Messiah and now they can't. It's that kind of kind of thing. 
And to wrap it up, John adds the final bit about Isaiah seeing his glory, talking about Messiah, speaking of him, talking about Messiah. John, of course, is leveraging Isaiah's words and purpose to apply them specifically to Jesus. It's, I don't know, I think it's quite powerful, and it carries with it a sense of doom. And and <laughs> you'll see, I mean, John said this one thing, what we're about to read next, I think you'll see John even felt that sense of doom and makes a half-hearted attempt to kind of lighten it a little bit with what comes next. But what do you got on this part, Samuel? Yeah, um, I'm getting two pictures, possible pictures in my head of this aspect of God hardening the nation of Israel's hearts, despite the revelation that is being brought to them through Messiah coming. Uh, The first picture in my head is the hardening that we see in Torah uh, between God and Pharaoh, where we kind of get the sense in the text that Pharaoh's inclination, his heart, his motivations, his convictions does not want to let the people go. But right. at, at a certain point through all the plagues and all the suffering that Egypt is being handed to on account of God, he kind of gets tired and he's relenting. But God being fully aware and knowing is like, okay, I know that you still are my enemy, even though that you're relenting in this bit. So I'm going to like help you out some and like return your opposition to me to where it was before so that we can continue this to its fulfillment. So that's picture one. The other picture of hardening is like a kind of like a, I don't know if it's capricious or stubborn, like it doesn't matter whether this group of people, there are those who are willing to receive this revelation or not. Uh, I'm going to harden all of you because of this purpose. Now, one of those to me sounds way more <laughs> fair and just for God to do than the other. Like I'm <laughs> leaning more towards option one and that like God was taking the situation within the first century of Israel where their culture, their spiritual leaders had ingrained in their into their culture. We are expecting a conquering king to come now, and he they, he's going to overthrow the Roman government who's been oppressing us. He's going to establish the kingdom, and we're going to be set free, uh, etc. And that, that it didn't happen like that. And instead, like God took that cultural opposition and used it to allow more time and space for the rest of the nations to be brought in right, um, yeah. w- without like undermining people's agency and their will and their ability to choose God and the revelation that Jesus was offering. Yeah, and I, I totally hear what you're saying. One sounds a little better than the other, whatever. And, and the only thing, for me personally, the thing that kind of helps is, and, and you said it, I don't remember your exact words, but... Something to the effect of, but but God's doing it for a purpose. And that's often the thing that's it's like a stumbling block for us. If we could truly see the big picture, the big story, the way God sees it, we'd probably be able to get on board much easier. But because we have a somewhat limited view, we don't quite understand the purpose, we can't see the, the big picture, whatever, 
uh, sometimes it feels like, oh man, God, that, that feels harsh. But all in all, yeah, Sam, I think both of your pictures are in their own way uh, exactly right. I think they help in understanding what we're seeing here. And we just have to kind of, you know, for our own selves, reconcile how each of those is good in their own way. But yeah, good stuff. Yeah, we just got to remember that even though that this aspect of the hardening of the nation is being portrayed here in the text, there's always a remnant that is present and that there are still those who accept the call and the mission. um, And it's not like it's not totality uh, right in terms of scope. Yeah. Yeah. So good. So important. The thread continues all the way through Judaism from then until now. So yeah, it's good. It's good. All right. So uh, John chapter 12, uh, we're going to look at verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. <laughs> so, so John tries to turn it around and be a little bit nice, lighten it up a little bit, and then he <laughs> ends up slamming him a little more. But so, so John lets us in on, I don't know, what kind of seems like a little secret. There were actually many among the authorities, and I don't know what you want to call them, leaders, VIPs, maybe it's priests, maybe it's Sanhedrin. What, uh, there were many among the authorities who did, in fact, believe that Jesus was this promised Messiah. Now, before we continue, let's at least let that little bit of goodness have its moment, okay? There were many among the authorities that believed. And a lot of times we don't, we don't get that picture. We don't have that image. But it's good. It, you, you need to fill out your image with that. Now, having taken a moment, John also throws a little shade on him. They believed, but they wouldn't admit it publicly. And from our gospel text, you know, we don't have a lot of examples of that, specific examples of that, but we might look at someone like Nicodemus. I, I think in the end, you gotta, you've got to categorize him as one of the good guys, quote unquote, and yet, you know, he kind of fits into this category. How about Joseph of Arimathea? He was big, you know, we'll see later at the burial, whatever. Uh, Important parts of the story, and yet it could be that John is kind of, you know, even including them here. Now, that goodness, you know, the one of them believing, it doesn't look quite as good in the shade, (laughs) if you know what I'm saying, Uh, but John is specific about why. He gives two reasons, and I think they're connected. The Pharisees ruled over the synagogue system. That's important to see. That's why he specifically calls out the Pharisees here. They had declared that Jesus' followers would be put out of the synagogue. They would be banned. Now, the degree to which that was enforced, whatever, that's all debatable. Let's not worry about that. The thing is... They didn't want that. These these guys, these these those who are among the authorities, they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue system. And come on, let's be fair. That's somewhat understandable. 
if that was the only reason, well, it would have been bad, but it wouldn't have been so bad. You know what I'm saying? But John adds, and here's the part that really gets him, that they loved the synagogues for something more than the synagogue's actual good purpose, role, what it, what it was fulfilling. They were the authorities, and again, it's leaders, VIPs, whatever. They liked the honor, the glory that came with that in the synagogue system, among the synagogues. So at best, John was calling them cowardly believers. And so, you know, as we can see, John didn't do such a great job at alleviating that sense of doom we mentioned from earlier. But, uh, and, and this is to your point, what you've already said, Samuel, over the centuries, there have been many believing Jews, but they also have kept their belief secret. And sometimes, again, you got to try to be fair to these guys. Sometimes it's for a very good reason. But, you know, we're not going to get too deep into that. I'm sure it's a topic for another day. How do we know this? Well, we actually, in some cases, we have writings of individuals who lived their lives and only afterward, we you look at their writings, maybe it's diaries or, you know, whatever it might be, and it is obvious that they had a, a very sincere understanding and belief in this Jesus as Messiah, and yet it was not evident in their life. So it just it's a very interesting picture. But anyway, Sam, you got anything on that? Just one question that came to mind. These authorities that believed but didn't confess, are we to treat them as sheep or goats? Like, <laughs> does, does God take into account their acknowledgement of who Jesus is inwardly, even though that it didn't result in anything outwardly. But then we also don't know, like, we don't know the end of the story of some of these authorities. Like, after Jesus' death and resurrection, some of these people could have made the jump. But it's just one of the questions that comes to mind for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, And this is one of the, you know, one of those rare times when I feel very confident in my answer. I don't know. So, yeah, I, it's really hard to say. I mean, it's a great question, something to let your mind spin on. Did they actually walk it out? I mean, think about it. You could live a life that is amazingly similar to Christ, you know, really trying to image God and all that kind of stuff, and never say with your lips, you know, oh, yeah, I totally believe in this Jesus guy, you know, whatever right? In public. Now, there are some warnings, you know, Jesus says things like, hey, if you don't acknowledge me, I won't acknowledge you, you know, or, you know, different, whatever. But I don't know. I don't know. And again, you mentioned it, their life after his death. It's a great question. All I know is, what am I going to do with that? I'm going to look at them and say, man, I can't feel confident about their future, I, I, I feel, personally, I feel hopeful for them, but I can't feel confident about it. And so I'm going to look at me and my own life and say, what can I do to, to the best of my, my knowledge, the best of my abilities, to, to 
be certain. I want to imitate, image him the best that I can so that I can be confident. So, I, yeah, I don't know. That's good, though. I, I like that, the way you yeah. spun that. <laughs> Spin. That's what we do here. <laughs> no. Uh, so, now, here, though, I'm going to read this next little bit, and I honestly think this is going to confuse you right at first. So, this is John chapter 12, verses 44 to 50. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. All right, so John now has Jesus crying out, shouting, if you will, one final eh, teaching or teaching-ish. I don't know. And, And okay, here's something to note about Jesus. He wasn't always calm and quiet. I mean, the dude showed passion, emotion, like real human stuff. It's good for your image of who he is. Now, it's also kind of weird that not too many verses ago, John had Jesus departing and hiding. Verse 36, we talked about it. Hey, it looks like the end of his public ministry. So <laughs> we, we don't really know. Well, when did he say this? Or, or, or who was he shouting at? In some ways, it appears to be a small, disconnected bit of text because John had him leaving, and now all of a sudden, he's yelling at people. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating. But hey, so, so this little part is weird. But he does start with some important basics. Belief in Jesus, you know, and as God's Messiah, not just that, you know, he existed or something— Belief in Jesus is belief in God, and, and God was the promise keeper, redeeming man and creation. It's what he said he was going to do from the very beginning, and so he does it through Messiah, and if you believe that Jesus is that Messiah, then you're believing in God, okay? Now, in fact, when you see Jesus for who he is, you're actually seeing God, Jesus was, or maybe we should say is, a human manifestation of God. In very much the same way, what was the, what's the first chapter of John got in it that's so important, Samuel? In the beginning was the Word. Yeah, and the Word was made. Made flesh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was a, Jesus was a human manifestation of 
the Word, Torah. Now he's a human manifestation of God. If you're seeing Jesus, you're actually seeing God. Super awesome. You can look at similar statements. Uh, you could go look at like uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, John chapter 14, verses 7 through 9. And again, we talked about this just not long ago. Jesus calls himself light. Now, since he's talking about, hey, if you're seeing me, you're seeing God, is this potentially an allusion back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3? That light of Genesis, well, that in Scripture is equated with the Torah and the Word, and we know the Word became flesh, etc., right? Jesus calls himself light. That light of Genesis, well, it kind of disappears from the story. We know that that light isn't the sun, moon, stars, etc. It's different. But just because it disappears from the story doesn't mean that it ceases to exist. This world, for all practical purposes, we would look at it as dark because of sin. And that's, you know, the garden story, exile from Eden, etc. But we don't have to remain in that darkness. As John said in his first chapter, Darkness doesn't comprehend light, but true light can enlighten every man. So believing in him, and that is both faith and faithfulness, it offers a real or actual conduit of that light. And that is that whole concept of seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. So, now, these, these are just, these are awesome pictures. I love John. He's hard to read, but I love him. Real quick, before you move oh, yeah. on, just to yeah. add a little detail, there's a midrash that says that uh, that primordial light in Genesis 1, um, after the fall, like after Adam and Eve's sin, that that primordial light has gone into exile or it has ah. it has left creation and it is waiting to come back until the establishment of the messianic kingdom uh, on earth again. So you can see allusions there. It's like Jesus, you know, because of the fall of Israel taking up his gospel message of repentance is about to go away into exile, so to speak, until he returns to establish his light uh, within the messianic kingdom. I think that's cool. Oh, yeah. I love all those connections. And there there are a couple places where you can get stuff that is, they, they really focus it on it. You'll see it a lot from all the materials from FFOZ, First Fruits of Zion. You'll see it a lot in the materials from the Bible Project. The way that they are able to connect things back through Scripture, it is so awesome and so good. You may or may not agree with everything you hear or whatever, but oh, they're just really good at making those connections. So thanks for throwing that in, Sam. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> Now, uh, now Jesus switches to talking about his words, and it, it almost sounds like good news. Hey, if you don't keep my words, I won't judge you, right? <laughs> but if you stopped there, that would be a very unfortunate takeaway, okay? Uh, it's been stated before. It's stated here again. Jesus's first coming wasn't for judgment. It was for salvation. This doesn't mean, however, that judgment won't happen. And as we continue, in fact, Jesus makes it clear that he doesn't need 
to act as a judge because the words that he is speaking will act as a judge on the last day. His words will judge all who reject him and do not receive his words. And and Jesus, he, he even takes the time to explain why or how this works. Jesus never spoke from his own authority. He spoke what God commanded him to speak. Therefore, Jesus only speaks from God's authority. Therefore, if you reject Jesus and do not receive his words, you are rejecting God and not receiving God's words. Now, that is heavy and awesome all at the same time. This this is amazing, good stuff. The only other prophet who had a relationship that we might say, you know, was in some way similar to, to what Jesus is describing here is God and Moses. And of course, we've said this before, Messiah is supposed to be the prophet like Moses, a second Moses. He hears face to face plainly. He's telling the people what God is saying. So whatever the crowd is at this point, whoever might be listening to him, they they might have been making this Moses connection. We might even go so far as to say it was likely that they would have been making this Moses connection because he, as a person, as a character, played so largely, hugely in their entire world, you know, like inside their brains. So to see someone who is claiming to have this kind of relationship with God, the only other person they ever would have known like that was Moses. So it's cool imagery. And then Jesus adds one final bit. It's an important little bit. Jesus says that he knows that whatever God commands is eternal life. Now, that's why he only said what God told him to say. And it's for life. It's for salvation, not for judgment. So don't miss that. And, and, and let's see, another thing we could say, you could read this and you could say, because Jesus talks about a single command, like God, God gave him a command. So you could read this as whatever God told Jesus to say is the commandment that gets equated with eternal life. Nothing wrong with that. I think that's absolutely true. However, we also, I think we need to see that every interaction that God has with creation is ultimately for life. I mean, that's, that's his purpose and goal. So in that way, you could also look at it and say, well, every command that God gives is for life. And so one probably should read Jesus's words as, I know that his commandment, and and we could say that that's whichever one that God would ever deliver at any time, or all of them collectively, whatever. I know that his commandment is eternal life. It is the story of the Bible. And how many times have we said this, Samuel? His will above our own. That equals life. Our will above his will, 
that equals death. It's the story of the garden, and it fills the Bible from beginning to end. It's just what it is. So there you go, Sammy. What do you got? That's good. I, if this aspect that you're mentioning about all that God says and all that God does is for the purpose of life, if that doesn't showcase the goodness of God to those who hear this, then I'm not yeah. sure what else will. Like, yeah. just to and just to wrestle with that 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 is his primary motivation for all of creation is that he wants life he wants abundance he wants wholeness between himself and humanity walking that out faithfully and it it puts into perspective like the the justice that and judgment that we've talked about you know several times previously that that doesn't take away from god's goodness that that is simply god addressing the evil, the corruption, the oppression that that has happened to his created world, and he is making that right. But that that should not undermine his primary intention of wanting goodness for us before that court date or that verdict uh, comes da- right. down the road. Yeah, so many times I- I've seen this through my life in the church. People look at God's commands as if they're, you know, a bit of a problem, a bit of a burden. Oh, it's too hard. I wish he, you know, I'm so thankful for grace because, you know, whatever it is they say, all those kind of things. And they miss out on the fact that everything that he is commanding you, if you would, you know, sort of look into it, understand the direction, the instruction, the guidance that's being offered to you through the command, it's actually a gift. It's, it's, he's helping you out, man. <laughs> but, but we just, we just don't look at it that way. And it's so sad because we're missing out. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah. Love what you said, Samuel. Yeah. Anything else? Uh, yeah, I, yeah, it may be time for me to ruffle some feathers. Uh-oh. <laughs> I can hear and, him squawking already. <laughs> and it goes into what you said about uh, people's interpretation of God's commandments. What you said previously about Jesus never speaking from his own authority, and he, he's only speaking what God commanded him, and this yeah. dynamic of if you reject Jesus, you're somehow rejecting God and his words. I just want to say, if... We as believers or people who are trying to wrestle and study God's word, if we are rejecting Torah or if we are rejecting the law, you could flip that backwards. In some ways, you're rejecting Jesus because those those words are the embodiment of Jesus' life. And so we should really strive to do away with that misconception because it it that sounds heavy like to say that like oh my gosh if i've thought that the law doesn't matter or the torah is done away with that and somehow means that i think that jesus doesn't matter and that jesus is done away with like that's crazy yeah all i can say samuel is let the ruffling begin because <laughs> yeah it's it's awesome now again the confusion comes often in the relationship that we have to that law 
right? If, if you somehow imagine that we or anyone else is saying that, hey, I am not Jewish, and but I am Christian, and somehow I have to go back and keep the Torah in the same way that a Jew would keep it in, in covenant? Okay, no, no, nobody's saying that. But to act as though the words of Torah, the commands of Torah, all of that are somehow without value, that they've, they've lost their meaning and purpose and value, okay, that is the mistake, and we need to see them for what they are. It's all about direction, instruction, guidance. We have to look into it, understand it, and, and see the weightier portions of the law, everything about justice and mercy and humility and all of that. It's, it's so good. So, yeah. It's true, Samuel. It is heavy. It is big. But uh, what are we going to do? Somebody's got to say it, so it may as well be us. Mm-hmm. All right. Next bit. Next bit. All right. We are looking at Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 13, and Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. And I'm going to go ahead and read Mark. Here we go. And while he was at Bethany... In the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than three hundred denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Okay, now. This sounds familiar. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. If you think you've heard this story before, uh, it's understandable because you have. Now, Here's the thing, though. This story, like the, the actual parallels, right? We've got Matthew 26, 6 through 13, Mark 14, 3 through 9. It seems very much like the story that was told, you know, fairly recently in our podcast in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Now, we've spoken of these things before. There are obvious similarities, but there are some pretty big differences, too. The idea of, uh, like, whose house are they in? Or who exactly this woman is? And when in, in the story, like what date or day or whatever, when is this happening? All of these things, okay, they're differences. And we could even go back and pull up way earlier, Luke chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, right? Bring this into the conversation. And, and this was... A, a totally, well, seemingly a totally different story. It was at a at someone's house putting, uh, he invited Jesus to a dinner or whatever. It, it's, it's all very different. 
there are, again, some similarities, but many differences. Now, there are those who believe that every one of these stories is a unique event that took place, like this actually happened to Jesus three different times or something like that. There are others who believe that all of these stories are actually just a different telling of a single event. And then, of course, there are those who believe that, you know, it could have been anything in between, however you might define that. I don't know. So in an attempt to settle this, I'm going to go with Delmer's approach and say, okay, I'm with you fellers. (laughs) And if you want to hear more about some of these earlier stories, you could go listen to the Gospels number 44. That's the, the way earlier story. Or you could go listen to the Gospels number 101. And, and it's going to talk about a lot of the detail of the story. We won't do near as much here because we don't want to be too repetitive. But anyway. Was that here's... from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Oh, yes, it was. Okay, okay. <laughs> Just making sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One guy said he was voting for himself, and the other guy said he was voting for himself. And they asked for Delmer to break the tie. And he said, well, I'm with you fellers. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. It got me confused because I've I've always said his name Delmar. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. I, you know what? I've heard it both ways. <laughs> so anyway, what what's going on here? Let's treat this one as if it, you know, it's accurate, detailed, whatever. As far as we can tell, this is Wednesday night. And... They're at the house of a man named Simon. In fact, (laughs) he's called Simon the leper. Now, to be clear, we should probably be thinking of him as Simon the former leper, because if he was still a leper, they couldn't, you know, he wouldn't be having people to his house and all that kind of stuff. He would have been an outcast. He, He wouldn't have been able to do that. So Simon the former leper, it's the only way the story could make sense. And in that... I mean, we don't know. Can just always be honest about that. But you might make the assumption this could even have been a man that Jesus healed. Now, that's not the only possible scenario. There were people who were suffering uh, from leprosy, some form, and they actually recovered. Got better. Which, I mean, most people don't think of that, but it's not like modern day leprosy. What is that called? Hansen's disease or whatever. It's different. So that could have happened too. So whatever you think, you know, just kind of hold on to it loosely. That's all. But in this story, we have a woman. Now, in this case, she's not named. In John's story, it was it was Mary. Uh, but in, in another story, they called her, uh, I think it was the Luke 7 one, they called her a sinner. This woman, she's not named. She's not called a sinner, anything. But like the other story, she has some very expensive ointment. Pro- well, it's specifically called nard here. And uh, she breaks the container. And, and this was not uncommon. Uh, these containers were designed that way. Not all of them, but some. And it's strange to me. They say that they're stone. And I don't understand how that works. But whatever it was, however they were made, uh, they had this long, thin neck. And it got plugged and and the way that you opened the container was to literally break that neck. So anyway, 
That appears to be the kind of container she had. That's what she did. She pours it on Jesus' head while he's reclining at table. Now, uh, I know I'm just kind of retelling the story, but, you know, let's, let's get through. Some were bothered by this, and, and it could have been some of his disciples. It could have been others. Who knows? But they complained. And, and here's the difficulty. Depending on which account you're reading, did they complain to themselves? Did they keep it silent? Nobody actually heard them complaining? Or did they complain out loud? Don't know, but here's what we do know. The complaint was what this could have been sold for 300 denarii, and we have said this before. That's nearly a year's wages. And, you know, the idea was, well, if you had sold it, the proceeds could have been given to the poor. Okay, by nearly every measure you could come up with, that is a reasonable complaint. Why are you wasting stuff, expensive stuff? We could help the poor with it. It's reasonable. Now, what could have been on this woman's mind? You might think, uh, well, you know what? She, she knew who he was as a teacher, and she just wanted to honor him for the great teacher that he was. Okay, possible. Could it be that she felt that, hey, this is Messiah, which they understood as a king. And so was she anointing this Messiah, anointing this future king? Maybe she had it in her head that when he went to Jerusalem this time, he was really going to take his throne. We don't know. Maybe. Could it be that, you know, and we talked about this with the John telling of the story with Mary, could it have been some sort of romantic gesture? And now, we don't, we don't know. We only have that idea because John gave it to us, okay? But that's not in view here. But, you know, we, we wonder, who is this woman? What's her, what's her motivation? Now, here's the thing. It doesn't seem likely that she would have truly understood that his upcoming death and burial was like literally a day or two away. How would she know that any more than anyone else? I mean, he's told his disciples more than once, and they still don't seem to get it. Not really. But who knows? Maybe she did. Maybe she saw something that the others simply weren't able to see. Here's what we do know. Jesus sees it clearly. Whether this, you know, uh, the, the, the burial thing was the woman's true and original intention or not, kind of doesn't matter. Jesus understands her actions to be preparation for burial. Now, okay, if, if you were to take this at face value, it's on Wednesday night and, and all this kind of stuff. Interesting side note. She then would have been the only one to perform this specific kind of action on his physical body, this anointing for burial. And he, Jesus, thinks it's beautiful. In fact, he's so touched that he declares her actions will be told of along with the gospel wherever it's proclaimed in all the world for, you know, the remainder of time in this age. And Samuel, I'd like you to read just the first part of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. 
A good name is better than precious ointment. (laughs) Do you think there's any chance that she knew of that? Or better still, and we know that Jesus did. Jesus knows of this verse. And so he understands giving her this good name. Oh, man, that was way better than that precious ointment that she had, right? Such Mm -hmm. a great picture. But in the middle of all of this, okay, now this was all, I mean, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's a neat image picture, all of this, except for the, you know, the guys that are trying to rain on the parade. In the middle of this, though, Jesus makes this odd statement. You will always have the poor with you. Now, Samuel, I I don't know. When you hear that, is there at least a part of you that goes, wow, I mean, is, is that kind of a flippant disregard for the less fortunate right there? I mean, what's going on? Can, can you at least sympathize with people who might read it that way, Samuel? For sure. Yeah, yeah. It seems weird. But if you think that that's what Jesus is doing, flippant disregard for the less fortunate, well, you'd be wrong. <laughs> Jesus was a living, breathing example, manifestation of Torah. So let's go look at one little snippet from the Torah, Samuel, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. Read that for us. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Yeah. So on one hand, Jesus is affirming something that's in the Torah. You'll always have poor with you. You'll never cease to be poor in the land. And we know from his life that this idea of opening your hand wide to your brother, the needy, the poor, all of that, that was the way Jesus lived. And yet in this moment, he's, he's approving of what this woman has done. This whole idea of opening wide your hand, taking care of the needy and the poor. I mean, this is the way Jesus thought. It's the way he spoke. It's the way he acted. Why then was this woman's actions okay? Well, we've spoken many times of how we must sometimes prioritize one command over another. And we've used what I always think is the simplest example. If you had some contention between a positive command, thou shalt, and a negative command, thou shalt not kind of stuff, well, the positive command always wins. That's like a, it's a traditional interpretation. What do you do when you have to prioritize one command over another? Well, there is a command in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. I won't make you read it, Samuel, but basically it says that you're supposed to bury someone who has been executed on the same day. Now, at first you might think, why are we talking about that? Well, Think about the obvious connection to Jesus. He's about to be executed. Executed. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And and it has this idea of you, you need to bury one on the same day. Now, historically and traditionally in Judaism, they took this command and they said, hey, you know what? If it's important to bury someone on the same day, and that someone is someone who's been executed, we might 
think of them in simple terms like, gosh, they're a bad guy. Well, how much more important is it to bury someone on the same day for like an ordinary person or even a righteous person? So this whole idea of burial, the idea of caring for the dead, it became a highly regarded command, especially since it was one of those commands that you did for someone who was absolutely, completely unable to do for themselves, you know, because they're dead. So uh, the idea of burying someone, caring for the dead, it was, man, it was super important. So in fact, in first century Judaism, a person was released from the responsibility of many of the commandments while they were caring for the dead. So this woman... I think we can look at this and say, hey, she's prioritizing care of the dead over care for the poor. Now, did she really know she was doing that? Did she really mean she was doing it? I don't know. It's debatable. But Jesus saw it that way. Jesus wholeheartedly approves. And so, in in this sense, we could say that this woman, more than anyone else present, except maybe Jesus, this woman could truly see i just think that's awesome it is awesome what you got samuel yeah i've got quite a bit actually okay (laughs) Um, do it first is um this concept that you were talking about the the honor of caring for the dead um another thing that i've read within jewish texts is why that is so esteemed is that caring for the dead and their burial their preparation whatever rabbinic thought treats that as there's nothing that you can gain after the fact by doing something for the dead. And what I mean by that is, let's say, other commands like treating your livestock with dignity and respect or your land uh, with care as as a steward of God's creations. If you do those appropriately, you could see some return through those obedient walking out of those commands like you get more yield more produce yeah or with people like if you alleviate someone's suffering or you help someone out who is poor like they their life could get to a point later on where they rise up and then they may be able to repay you in some way that you never thought was imaginable but right. with the dead like you you're <laughs> there's nothing you're going to get because they're dead and so they just think yeah. that that awards you a lot of merit because yeah. you're doing something without expecting anything in return. Yeah, it, it actually represents the perfect image of how we are supposed to be in relationship with other humans and be charitable, etc. Everything is supposed to be done with no thought for anything in return. In fact, sometimes you actually plan and finagle the way that you even do what you do to make sure that you cannot get anything in return so yeah Mm. awesome imagery samuel cool uh the next thing has to do with the always having the poor with you um and you addressed it like 100 percent. it's not a flippant disregard of the less fortunate i think that it's awesome that the torah well jesus and then previously the torah referenced this specifically because i argue that Poverty is always going to be present while 
sin and death are present within the created world. Like you poverty is a result of corruption and sin and death. And I just think it's cool that God is addressing that to say that there is going to be a day where poverty will cease. And that's whenever I restore yeah. creation and humanity. But until that happens, I'm calling you like humanity with the capability of mimicking me and my attributes to take care of these people who have been more afflicted by sin and death than others until yeah. I can make it right fully. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to bring that up that God's not ignoring that reality and he's given us a solution to address it until he can fix the underlying problem. Yeah. Oh, so good. So good. What else? Um, real quick. Uh, so the, the similarities in this woman with the, with the nard in multiple accounts, are, are we saying definitive? I mean, we can't say it definitively, but is the John 12 account, because that one feels the most similar, it, it, should we treat that as the same story as here in Mark chapter 14? Yeah, well, this is one of those few times when I can feel completely confident in my answer. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, you know what? I would, I would say this, Samuel. The majority that I have read about this does feel very comfortable saying that those two are, in fact, the same story. There are, and, and as I mentioned, there are some who think they're all unique and separate, some who think... Man, even the one back in Luke 7 is the same. It's just a different telling. Yeah, we just don't know. And if if it's like, man, they seem similar enough to me, I think they're the same. Well, by all means, you run with that. Hold it a little loosely in case someone were to ever come up with an idea, a thought, uh, some example in Scripture, something to make you think differently. But yeah, if if that's the way it looks and feels to you, it's totally understandable, and by all means, run with it. Okay. Well, now that I know that there is some confidence to put the two together, while we were going through this section, I was thinking, like, with how expensive that nard is, it, it, it brought a question to my mind, is, I wonder if this woman was affluent in any sense. How did she get something so expensive uh, because a lot of times in my mind, and I wonder if anybody else treats these women who come to Jesus and pour these expensive perfumes and oils on his head and feet, I, I picture them as like ragged or just unbelievably poor. But I don't know, like there could be an affluent nature to this woman. And I'm, why I'm bringing that up as important is because in the John account, it says that she took the nard and rubbed his feet in it with her hair, whereas mm. this Mark version only says that she poured it on his head. So if this woman was affluent, she's also mimicking this nature of the kingdom that Jesus has referenced previously about those that want to be a part of the kingdom who are exalted need to lower themselves or humble themselves. And yeah. that like in the kingdom, those that have been exalted are going to be brought low and that those who have been brought low will be made exalted. So for an affluent woman to bring herself to such a vulnerable position to 
rub somebody's feet, like that shows the humility that she has concerning Jesus. Yeah, and you know, first of all, I think the idea of her being somewhat affluent is totally on. It's difficult to imagine her being some of the poorer of the land. But it doesn't absolutely have to be so. We have some some historical examples, indicators. Again, this whole idea of burial and the way we care the way we care for the dead and everything was such an important thing. We have seen like families sort of invest together in in some of these more expensive things, and it wasn't really intended intended for a single individual. It was it was like no, this is for all of our family for all time. You know, we've invested in this thing, and 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 they use it accordingly. Uh, and we know that there are also a lot of people, uh, Jews of this time, man, their ability to live just really scarce lives, if you want to say it that way, because they wanted to invest all that they had in things like the Sabbath or the festivals or burial or whatever. Some of those things come into play too. So we can't say with certainty on any of that stuff, but you know, I think the most reasonable image to have is one of someone who, yeah, she or her family or whatever, they probably were fairly well off. And this, this you know, could have represented some sort of sacrifice for them, but not in the same way that you would examine, uh, expect from a, a poor person. But then again, we saw that, you know, Jesus praised that woman who put the half penny in or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, it, it's just difficult to say. But yeah, I think, I know for me personally, I kind of picture her as fairly well-to-do. Like in America, we call, at the very least, middle class, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we don't know. Gotcha. Anything that's, else? That's all I have caused us to go way long. That's okay. That's all right. Let's cut this thing off so people can go have a day. Okie dokie. Thanks for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. Please send us any comments or questions you may have at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best. To present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.